previously on Patient Zero. I felt that there was some something there, but the medical profession said, well, there is no such disease. Headache, pain, neck pain, cognition, word-finding problem, problems with vision, it could lead to blindness. Rarely. You know, sometimes I feel like telling my patients, look, if anybody knows what chronic Lyme disease is, it's me. Over 98% of them are going to be uh, positive by serology. There is no test that can absolutely rule out Lyme disease. This whole experience made me feel crazy and like I'm a hypochondriac. There's so much information out there. It's very hard for patients to know what's real and what isn't real. It made me question myself a lot. And there's some very smart people advocating very strongly some things that aren't true. By the time I first started working on this series last summer, I had read controversies about the term chronic Lyme disease. I had read that doctors had lost their medical licenses for prescribing long-term antibiotics. But I had tackled divisive topics before, so I thought I could figure it out. Am I right in that? Because I'm just just curious from a science... Pretty quickly, I found myself in the weeds struggling to understand scientific papers. Yeah, I mean, that is a broad question, and uh, it, it applies to all of science in a way, but especially... Calling experts and then stumbling through my questions. <laughs> Sorry, where, where, what was the question? Um, I don't know. I don't know. I guess I don't know what I'm asking. And eventually, I started to wonder, what if the reason it's so hard to navigate this topic is because of something you won't actually find in the scientific literature? What if some of the biggest fights and controversies over Lyme disease actually have to do with values? Normative ethics is about human actions. This is philosopher and ethicist Jean-Tine Lunchoff. What is the right thing to do? When you hear the phrase medical ethics, you might think of things like consent to treatment, information privacy, the whole do-no-harm thing. Concepts that start and end with one doctor and one patient. So you're looking at outcomes, at consequences, and at the same time, you, you know, you're looking at what, what would be your duty, your obligation to do as a, as a doctor or as a nurse. But in a world with limited resources and uneven health care, what is and isn't ethical can spill out of the exam room and into society as a whole. In classical medical ethics, that is a big uh, dilemma when, when doing the best for one person may have Uh, consequences for public health. It may also have economic consequences. And think of the the very difficult dilemmas that arise with expensive treatments. Case in point, Lieber's Hereditary Optic Neuropathy, or LHON. It's a rare hereditary disease that leads to blindness. Lunshoff tells me that in 2016, scientists pioneered a breakthrough genetic therapy that could end this disease as we know it. It seems that it can cure these patients, that it can prevent blindness. But there's a catch. This therapy cost $800,000. So should you give that? Can you give that? Which society can afford it? $800,000 per person. That's enough money, Lunchoff says, to perhaps vaccinate hundreds, maybe thousands of children against a disease like malaria. So, ethics question. If it were up to you, what would you do? Saving, rescuing their vision or 
uh, performing a large vaccination program, you can spend money only once. So what are you going to spend it on? Whether we're talking about where to put research dollars or what treatments should be covered by insurance, personal health care decisions are impacted by public consideration. And the reverse is true, too. The way healthcare is designed is influenced by our desires as individual patients. This tension between personal and public health, it isn't just financial. There are actual cases where to treat one disease increases the risk of another. Cases where the treatments that help you may indirectly wind up hurting someone else. Is this a good action as such, as something that you do, even regardless of the consequences? There is nothing that has no price. I think that is very important to be aware of. It can seem like there is a gulf between epidemiologists, healthcare providers, and scientists, and the patients they're actually trying to help. Like Like two two humans, looking looking at the same information from two two different different perspectives, can walk away with radically different conclusions. I'm Taylor Quimby. Today, we're talking about the central controversy of Lyme World, chronic Lyme disease. What is it? Where does it come from? And why is treating it with long rounds of antibiotics so controversial? This is a fight that isn't what you think it is. This is a proxy war over the future of medicine as we know it. Really, it's not underselling it to say that it is one of the most serious threats to the health and safety of the population, not just of the United States, but of the world. This is Patient Zero. history of medicine has been a history of moving from kind of thinking about temperament and constitution to thinking about actual specifically defined diseases that have specific sets of symptoms, very specific manifestations. Um, And this is where I become a kind of challenge to the medical system because I don't seem to have that. You're hearing the voice of Megan O'Rourke, a poet, the newly appointed editor of the Yale Review, and a contributor to The Atlantic. Her story is one of the final case studies we'll be hearing on this podcast, one that touches on just about every idea we've covered up until now. Listen in and see if you can recognize them as we go. Well, the mystery of the mystery is I have no idea where it really started, but the story I tell myself is that it started... In the fall of 1997, after a week vacationing with her family on the Connecticut shoreline, Megan took a job as an editorial assistant with The New Yorker magazine. I noticed as I was walking to work that I would begin getting these electric shocks, as I call them, all over my body, and they were so violent. I would have to stop and rub my legs, or else my legs would begin just twitching and spasming, and I would almost, like, fall over. Like a tingly sensation or more painful than that? Much more painful and sharp. There were other unusual symptoms, too. Her fingers were turning blue in the cold. She was getting hives every day. And at work, she started taking the elevator couldn't really walk up and down the staircase. It made give me so much vertigo because there was something about the open backs and seeing the floor below, which was really strange because I'd been a gymnast. 
Life went on this way for a long time. Strange, intermittent symptoms throughout her 20s. Doctors checked Megan for lupus and other issues to no avail. I didn't test positive for any. So I was getting this kind of like, you're fine, you're just a little bit worried from, from most of the doctors I saw. But then, in her 30s, Megan was given a diagnosis. An autoimmune thyroid condition that can cause dry skin and hair, fatigue, and a number of other issues. It's called Hashimoto's disease. For people with chronic illness, putting a name to their symptoms can be a huge relief. Megan was prescribed hormone therapy and lifestyle changes to help reduce her symptoms. Um, so I was like going to sleep at nine o'clock. I was, you know, squeezing the skins off organic almonds every morning to make my own almond milk. I was doing everything I could. To, I didn't even know that um, almonds have skin. Almonds do have skin, yeah. But relieved as she may have initially been, Hashimoto's disease didn't explain everything Megan had experienced up until this point. And herein lies one of the most confounding aspects of health. At any given time, a person's body may contain a constellation of problems that aren't easy to unpack. And despite the hormones, the exercise, eating healthy, cutting out all the sorts of activities that could aggravate her thyroid condition, Megan wasn't feeling any better. For some reason, she was feeling worse. My doctor said, well, you do feel better. You just don't realize it, and you want to feel 100%, but um, you're going to feel 80% for the rest of my life. And I remember, I love this doctor, but I remember looking at her and being like, I am at 10%. Hard about whatever it is that I have, like many people who have these kinds of chronic illnesses, was that a lot of it was invisible, right? It was, I didn't feel very well. It felt like I had the flu every day. I ached. Um... And that's how Megan wound up turning towards alternative therapies, browsing online communities of other chronically ill patients with ill-fitting diagnoses, searching for medical spaghetti to throw at the wall. She knew that many of the treatments she found there didn't have a lot of science behind them, but she was desperate. I had more and more neurological symptoms. So I was developing tremors. I had large numb patches on my left hand in particular. I'm left-handed. I was losing control of my left hand. Like, I couldn't really write with my left hand anymore. Um, there wasn't a lot of risk to me in trying some stuff out that was not well-supported because I thought, I'm not sure I'm going to be alive in a few years. She heard online about a drug that had become popular with chronically ill patients. It's called naltrexone, an opioid blocker prescribed to help people with substance abuse issues. There are some studies, not a lot, but some, that show it's helpful for people with conditions like fibromyalgia, multiple sclerosis, and Crohn's disease. The drug is considered relatively safe in terms of side effects, so Megan thought, what the hell, and went to see a doctor to try and gin up a prescription. And as a, that was what I was focused on, was trying to get her to give me this medication. Um, when she took my case history, she said, it really sounds like you have Lyme disease. Her doctor sent blood samples to three separate labs with different interpretive criteria, including ones not approved by the CDC. And not surprisingly, the results were mixed. The specialty labs, with their liberal diagnostic criteria, said the results suggested yes. The conventional laboratory, using the more conservative Dearborn standards, said no. With those test results, I was introduced to the incredibly confusing world of Lyme testing and the even more confusing and destabilizing fact that to some degree I was going to have to decide how I wanted to um, 
you know, whose interpretation I wanted to listen to. And by choosing that interpretation, I was either going to choose to become a Lyme patient or not. As I've said, we've covered all this in previous episodes of Patient Zero. The dismissal of symptoms that don't point towards a clear diagnosis, the confusion that stems from alternative interpretations of Lyme tests. But did Megan have Lyme disease? Go ahead. What do you think? Just kidding. You don't have to answer that. Megan's case is ambiguous. Her doctors couldn't figure it out. So how could you? You can't prove she has Lyme disease. You can't prove she doesn't. Certainly not after a five-minute podcast interview. Tell me to start with, um, you didn't get treated right off the bat. No, because I was like, eh, I don't think I really have this. It seemed, as I describe in the piece, once... When Megan O'Rourke was first told she might have Lyme disease, she chose not to pursue treatment. The tests were, at best, inconclusive. And she had heard about the culture of Lyme disease and the fact that it attracted some dubious healthcare providers. But her symptoms continued to get worse. More, most disturbingly, as a writer, I was just losing cognitive function. So after six months or so, she gave in. And Jim, my partner, who's also sort of a skeptically minded person, was like, you've tried everything else. Really, what are three weeks of antibiotics going to do? Which was true. At that point, I had done some pretty wacky things. So, um, And was this just uh, like three weeks of doxy? Yeah. Yeah. That was the beginning. The beginning. After her first round of doxycycline, a standard oral antibiotic, Megan was feeling a little bit better, but she still had symptoms. So her Lyme literate doctor opted for another longer round. And this time, he added an anti-malarial drug into the mix. And I just, again, sort of temperamentally am a skeptic. So I was like, Ugh, do I really need another round? And do I really need to be on malaria drugs? Like, this is a lot of drugs. Even though I was so much better right away, I was still, you know, I really wanted certainty. According to the experts that help set treatment guidelines, 14 days of doxycycline is supposed to cure most cases of Lyme disease. New draft guidelines suggest even less, just 10 days. This, despite the fact that not everybody who undergoes treatment for Lyme disease will feel all the way better afterwards. In 10 to 20 percent of Lyme cases, patients continue to have arthritis or pain and fatigue or cognitive problems. For people who have a clear diagnosis of Lyme in the first place, Authorities call these cases post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome. For ambiguous cases with weird symptoms and shaky lab results, for people like Megan, there is no CDC official name for this problem. But many wind up calling it chronic Lyme disease. Doctors don't know how best to help people with post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome. But they're even less sure how to help people with chronic Lyme, because often, they're not 100% sure that it was Lyme to begin with. It's a topic I've pretty much avoided up until now. But here we go. There are a few theories about why people have persistent symptoms after treatment. Leftover pieces of dead bacteria may be causing residual inflammation. Or perhaps the disease has triggered an autoimmune reaction that lasts even after the infection's treated. In some cases, it could be misdiagnosis. Some speculate these symptoms could stem from simultaneous infections from other tick-borne diseases. It could even be a combination of these things. But there's one theory embraced by the chronic Lyme community above all others. The spirochete, they say, ain't actually dead. 
2012, we published a paper demonstrating that we could recover uh, Borrelia burgdorferi from animals that had been treated with 28 days of doxycycline. This is Monica Embers, assistant professor in the Division of Bacteriology and Parasitology at Tulane University. She's not a chronic Lyme advocate, per se, but she's referenced by them frequently because her work provides the strongest evidence to date that some Borrelia spirochetes can survive courses of antibiotics. We did identify spirochetes in multiple tissues. We found it in the brains. We found it in the heart. Dr. Embers co-authored two studies that have shown infected monkeys didn't fully clear the infection after antibiotics. We found it in and around peripheral nerves. We found it in the joints. But these studies have limits. The bacteria Dr. Embers did find was not clearly capable of causing disease. Are these spirochetes just dormant? Are they continuing to cause disease? Are they um, attenuated and they'll eventually just go away? And more importantly, monkeys are not humans. Mark Klempner is a professor at UMass Medical School and a longtime Lyme researcher. He says if the infection really persisted in people, then why can't we find the spirochetes? If it is caused by an ongoing infection, we should be able to isolate it. And we've looked an, in an awful lot of places for that, you know, spinal fluid and blood and skin and, and all those, and, and you, you just don't find it in, in, in the vast, 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 vast majority of uh, persisting symptoms people. So it's led me to believe that these people have definitely ongoing symptoms, and we need a better approach to them, but it's not to try and kill persisting microorganisms. And yet, more antibiotics, drugs designed to kill or stop microorganisms, are often what chronic Lyme patients wind up getting. According to mainstream medical guidelines on Lyme disease, the toughest cases, hospitalized patients with Lyme carditis or cases of Lyme-related meningitis, might require up to 28 days of intravenous antibiotics. By contrast, Megan wound up taking oral antibiotics for about eight months straight. That's about eight times longer than the longest recommended prescription. You know, could I have had it for so long that, you know, more antibiotics would be helpful? Um, you know, again, I'm sort of, was my approach was sitting there reading these studies thinking, you know, I'm turning myself into a guinea pig, right? And I really don't know. I just don't know. Guinea pig or not, Megan says the antibiotics helped. Her energy was back. She and her husband got pregnant. But the question of whether she is quote-unquote better has remained. During her pregnancy, Megan's Lyme literate doctor recommended more antibiotics, just to be sure. And twice since her recovery, the electric shocks have returned. And each time she's wound up having to make the same decision. Should I take more? I'm really reluctant to take more antibiotics. I'm really reluctant to go down this path because who knows where it ends? Like, how do you decide it's ended? You, you don't actually get answers on the other side. No, you never get answers. Right. You have to become a... You have to become... It's like the Sherlock Holmes of your own body, which is a dangerous position to be in, even though also you're the only one who can do it. Lyme experts are sometimes quoted as saying that there's no benefit to longer rounds of antibiotics. But in person, many of these same experts will offer a slightly more nuanced statement. For example, I asked Paul Auerder, 
the former president of the Infectious Diseases Society of America, if the case on long-term antibiotics was open or closed. So as a scientist, I think it's an open question. Um, But as a physician, I also look at the studies and say, well, you know, six to seven well-performed trials have not suggested durable or significant benefit from additional antibiotics. So, you know, uh, why would I say that that should be the right course of action for my patients? No significant benefits. This can be a little confusing because to most of us, significant means substantial, important. But in science, significant can have a very precise statistical meaning. It was a very strong indicator, but not a statistically significant finding. This is Dr. Brian Fallon, director of the Lyme and Tick-Borne Diseases Research Center at Columbia University Medical Center. He co-authored one of four studies, funded by the National Institutes of Health, that have looked at long-term antibiotic therapy for Lyme disease. His was focused on cognition. Would patients with post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome, who were still dealing with bad memory and slow thinking after treatment, benefit from an additional 10-week course of IV antibiotics? Even though they did make uh, cognitive gains during the first three months of the study, they lost all of their cognitive gains by the uh, end of the six months of the study. In other words, there was a benefit. It just didn't last. Another NIH study, however, looked primarily at fatigue. And this time, 69% of patients had lower levels of fatigue six months later compared to 23% of those who got the placebo. But even in the case of these two studies, where a small benefit was observed, the authors concluded that the increased risk associated with taking IV drugs outweighed the rewards. In Fallon's research, 20% of the participants had to either go to the hospital or drop out of the study because of infections, blood clots, allergic reactions, and other complications. Yeah, I think in general, the international community has summarized all of the treatment studies, as, including mine, as being failures. For Fallon, the takeaway is slightly different. If we could figure out a way to reduce these risks but keep the benefits, the treatment might be worth it, he says. Yes, that's exactly right. Many researchers disagree. It's not to say that people don't sometimes feel better after they take antibiotics. This, again, is Dr. Mark Klempner, who, by the way, authored the first two NIH studies on long-term antibiotics back in 2001. But I don't think that there is a link between feeling better and the reason that they think they're taking that antibiotic. There are other things that antibiotics do, like decrease inflammation, for example. What Dr. Klempner is saying here is that he believes when post-treatment patients feel better when they take antibiotics, it's because the drugs reduce lingering inflammation, which might be there for any number of reasons. In other words, we could be using less powerful, less dangerous drugs to do the same thing. You are giving them an anti-inflammatory agent, something like a Motrin or, you know, know, ibuprofen. Ultimately, it circles back to the problem we talked about before— If you can't be sure what's causing the problem with post-treatment Lyme patients, then success is very hard to measure. Long-term antibiotics have helped some patients in some studies with some symptoms. But for doctors like Mark Klempner, that's not enough to justify their use. Antibiotics aren't meant to be a Band-Aid. They're supposed to cure or prevent infections. 
You know, they didn't cure the people. This is John Ocott, director of the Johns Hopkins Lyme Disease Clinical Research Center. There's some controversy about whether they helped improve some symptoms, especially fatigue. Um, but, but I have to say they, they, they weren't curative. Even Dr. Monica Embers, the woman whose work is often used as a justification for long-term antibiotic therapy, as the basis for chronic Lyme disease, she says long-term antibiotics probably aren't the right approach. If it doesn't work in 28 days, I don't think it's going to work in 90 or, you know, 120. It should be noted that there is such thing as clinical judgment. Guidelines are only guidelines, after all. And on a case-by-case basis, lots of reasonable doctors, like Brian Fallon, may look at the muddier details of these studies and choose to pursue a few extra weeks of antibiotics. If you have a patient in your office who has never had intravenous antibiotic therapy and they have severe um, Lyme disease, post-treatment Lyme disease symptoms, I would definitely recommend that they consider a course of, of intravenous antibiotic therapy that, that usually I recommend four to six weeks. But that's a few weeks of extra antibiotics. Longer than that, and that reasonable level of experimentation crosses further and further into a sort of medical twilight zone. 12 months, 24 months. I've heard stories of people on antibiotics for five years or more, in different combinations with batches of other prescriptions and herbal remedies thrown in. At these lengths, the effects of antibiotics for Lyme disease are completely unstudied. And based off of what we know, it might be unethical to even try. The evidence up until now has shown that the risks are high and the benefits, from a research standpoint, are low or non-existent. But I say all of this in a somewhat tortured state. It's literally kept me up nights. Because there is so much we don't know. And we could be wrong. So should researchers close the door or continue studying long-term antibiotic therapy? It's not a question that can be answered by science. Society has to decide. How much uncertainty can you live with in order to conduct your, the business of your day? We should never be overselling our data. We should never be saying to someone, I'm 100% sure, because intrinsic to biology, we're not 100% sure. But I, but I need to convince you that there is that uncertainty in everything we do, and, um, and you know, we behave with the 95% rule. But for people like Megan O'Rourke, who are sick and nothing seems to help, they'll do whatever it takes. And then they'll judge the treatments not by a series of studies conducted by the NIH, but by their own experience, by a study of one. You know, it's the weirdest thing, right? I don't know if I had Lyme disease. I don't know if I had Babesia. I went from thinking that if I didn't start to feel better, I would maybe have to end my life. You know, I just was suffering so intensely. Um, I went from feeling like that to basically feeling better than I've ever felt before over the course of a few months of antibiotics. 
am I just a Lyme patient who, for some reason, has a slightly funny test, right? Or do I have something that will never know what I have? Mm. But it's sort of like Lyme disease. I don't know. Yeah, and and uh, maybe never will. I don't think I'll ever know. Yeah. Megan is willing to admit she isn't sure, but for lots of people, knowing. Having a diagnosis is really important. And having that diagnosis dismissed is deeply and personally offensive. When you're covering Lyme disease, you'll often hear people say something like, When will people realize that chronic Lyme is a real disease? But what is it that makes a disease real? Megan's symptoms are real, but how epidemiologists name and define those symptoms as a disease is a moving target. Remember how Lyme disease used to be called Lyme arthritis? Names change the more we learn. Take, for example, a disease once called non-A, non-B hepatitis. Doctors didn't know how to find it, how to treat it, or what exactly caused it. Sometimes they even referred to this condition as chronic hepatitis. We had no idea how to treat it, and we would have long arguments about whether we should give the patient steroids or what we should do. This again is John Aucott. Now it's no longer non-A, non-B hepatitis, it's hepatitis C. We know its genome, we know everything about it, and, and now it's curable. Was non-A, non-B hepatitis real? Of course it was, but eventually the name was replaced with something more accurate. Or the people who didn't have hepatitis C may have, you know, fatty liver disease, or they may have autoimmune hepatitis, or they may have drug-related hepatitis, and they're all treated com- completely differently. So let's transfer the lesson. Is chronic Lyme disease real? From a patient perspective, yes. But from an epidemiological perspective, it might not be the best way to describe what people are going through. Scientists and researchers are wary of the term. Because with ambiguous or negative diagnostics, and symptoms that are all over the place, it might turn out that chronic Lyme patients have a mixture of different diseases and conditions that have accidentally been lumped into one. And I think that's eventually, hopefully, what will happen with chronic Lyme disease. It's going to be found to be a mixture of different specific um, diseases, um, one of which is probably this post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome, but there'll probably be other ones in there. And, and, and once they're defined molecularly, we'll recognize that right now treating chronic Lyme disease like it's one disease is as is, is wrong as it was to treat chronic hepatitis like it was one disease. Someday, this equation will evolve. We'll learn more, and the names will change. And hopefully, there will be real answers for people like Megan. But for now, it's limbo. So let's go back to the question I asked you earlier. Does Megan have Lyme disease? Perhaps one might answer, does it matter? What I don't understand is the sort of dismissal I see of patients, both from the medical establishment and in the mainstream media. You know, these are people who are suffering, and these are people who are making really challenging decisions. There's so much focus on these kinds of shady Characters giving, you know, questionable treatments to people and then these portrayals of, you know, credulous patients who are going to Reiki masters and asking for every last thing as if, like, they're just foolish. And I don't think most people are foolish. I think most people are really in need of answers that have not been forthcoming. And um, I think it's sort of a double wound that we're painted as foolish people, right? Um, When actually... 
I think most of us, if we were given clear answers, would probably be very happy to have them. This debate over long-term antibiotics hasn't just been taking place in academic papers. Medical organizations have actively tried to prevent doctors from prescribing people like Megan with long-term courses of antibiotics. If medicine is all about calculating the risks and rewards, why not let her and other patients like her make those decisions for themselves? You ever listen to an argument and slowly start to realize that the thing everybody says they're arguing about is actually code for something else? I think this is one of those cases. Because to understand this conflict, you have to understand it's not just about Lyme disease. People talk all the time, say, oh, someday we're going to encounter this big problem. We're going to run out of antibiotics. And, you know, this was in the early 2000s. I was like, someday, someday is here. That's when Patient Zero returns. So why don't I have you start by just introducing yourself? Okay. Uh, my name is Mary Curtin Pierce. Um, I don't... Uh, what do you want? <laughs> what do I want to know? Say, what do you, okay, I mean, I... Mary used to be a critical care nurse, working in a New Hampshire hospital not far from the capital, Concord. It's a job she cared deeply about. But like all jobs, there are good days and bad days. And on Valentine's Day in 2016, Mary was having a bad day. She was trying to draw blood from a nonverbal kid, and it wasn't going well. I can remember this mom standing sort of over my shoulder and directing my actions as a nurse. And I, I remember thinking she didn't did trust me, right? Didn't she know who I was all these years that I've studied, all these years that I've done this job? you know? And I can remember kind of thinking like, oh, rolling my eyes a little bit at her. Trust is a big part of healthcare, not just for patients, but for providers, too. It's hard to do your job when someone else is trying to do it for you. But it might not just have been the difficult situation that was stressing Mary out. Because truth be told, she wasn't feeling too hot. Yeah, like I thought maybe I had appendicitis or... Just like really bad cramping and like, like pain? Just pain, yeah. And I had a fever, I had a really high fever, and I had um, really... Uh, Mary was hoping to avoid a trip to the emergency room, which she knew from personal experience can be kind of a zoo. But she wound up going anyway. And eventually, she was diagnosed with something called diverticulitis. It's pretty normal. Um, most people will live with it their whole life. It's just like an outpouching, sort of like a little envelope that forms on intestinal tracts. And um, that little pouch will get infected sometimes. And what that meant was I needed to stay in the hospital for a few days um, and have IV antibiotics. After a week or so, I still wasn't feeling well, and prescription, you know, the, what they prescribed was more antibiotics. So, well, perhaps it's just sort of lingering and you, you need more antibiotics. So I took more antibiotics. And then I really started to feel not well again um, in a different kind of way. Mary, ever the nurse, followed protocol. First, she called her doctor, who told her to go to the emergency room. At the emergency room, they looked her over and sent her home. It was probably just the diverticulitis, they said. Um, and I got sicker and sicker and sicker through the night. And this, is this like throwing up, <clears throat> diarrhea, uh, Yeah, stuff? at that point, um, early the next morning, I, you know, it started out with just abdominal pain. 
cramping, I had a low-grade fever. And early in the morning, then I started to have GI symptoms like diarrhea. Um, and it was, um, I was intensely sick. Um, and I felt myself getting more and more weak. I had this overwhelming feeling that I needed to go to the hospital or I was going to die. <laughs> um, and so I um, went into the living room and I found one of my children and I told them to get daddy, you know, that I was going to die. And that is the last thing I remember. And then she came to. Um, some of the surgeons had come into my room and they were uh, changing out the dressing that was packed into my abdomen. Yeah. Mary was in the ICU. It was spring. Several months had passed and the body she remembered was not the same one lying on the hospital bed in front of her. They, I had an ostomy, which means they had taken my intestines um, out. You know, they were connected to the outside of my body and my abdomen. Um... So, you know, I really had, um, it looked a lot different. Here's what happened. Mary did have diverticulitis, but the antibiotics she had taken cleared all of the healthy bacteria in her gut and paved the way for another, more sinister variety, antibiotic-resistant Clostridium difficile, or C. diff. The C. diff colonized her gut. Her colon became so inflamed that it eventually perforated. It burst open, spilling its contents into her abdomen. Suddenly, her insides were bathed in human waste. One by one, her organs began to shut down. In order to save her, surgeons had to slice open her midsection, remove each one of those organs, and literally wash them clean. They cut out the infected bowel and rerouted what remained into a colostomy a makeshift opening in the belly. And because of the nature of this type of infection, the incision had to heal from the inside out. That means no stitches, no staples, just an open wound closing one cell at a time for months. I can remember thinking, did my body save me or did my body fail me? And what became evident to me was that it wasn't any of those things. It was actually my own profession, my own field um, had failed me. And, you know, and it's not it's not nursing. It's not medicine. It's it's the whole system. It might not be obvious, but Mary's battle against Clostridium difficile, the battle that very nearly killed her, is directly tied to why doctors do not endorse long-term antibiotic use for Lyme disease. We estimate that there are about a half million patients every year in the United States who will develop a Clostridium difficile infection, kills about 15,000 people every year in the United States. And the number one risk for developing Clostridium difficile, or C. diff, is getting an antibiotic. This, by the way, is Arjun Srinivasan. He works for the CDC and is focused on a very important issue with a boring, euphemistic name, antibiotic stewardship. Antibiotics, like any other drug, they have side effects, right? So they can cause rashes, um, they can make your tendons rupture, they can damage your uh, your heart. Antibiotics are are serious drugs. And what's worse, many of the people who are prescribed antibiotics 
won't benefit at all. Somewhere between 20 and 40 percent of all the antibiotics that we use in the United States are either completely unnecessary, we're prescribing an antibiotic when an antibiotic's not needed, or we're prescribing it incorrectly. Point number one. Infectious disease experts are so alarmed by unnecessary or ambiguous antibiotic therapy because thousands may die every year from infections acquired during treatments that aren't actually helping. But even more frightening is point number two, the possibility that hundreds of thousands will die because antibiotics just won't work anymore. Antibiotics are the only class of drugs that lose their effectiveness over time. Gonorrhea, a very common infection, could treat it with a pill. Now there are places where the pills don't work. They're completely ineffective. So there are patients in the United States who have entered what we call the post-antibiotic era. So it's literally like they have been put in a time machine and taken back into the 1930s because they are dying of infections that a decade ago I could have treated with an antibiotic that now I can't. In other words, patients who gamble on antibiotics when there is unclear evidence that they need them, aren't just risking their own necks. They are, in a small, indirect way, contributing to antibiotic resistance, creating deadlier pathogens and less effective medicine. Is this a good action as such, as something that you do, even regardless of the consequences? This again is ethicist Jean-Tine Lunchoff. Even if, even if it in the short term uh, it might have been good for that one patient, then it... Then contributing to the emergence of antibiotic-resistant strains is being involved in creating a very serious problem for um, uh, many people, for, for healthcare, for humanity. There's something I want to make absolutely clear. This is not a straightforward causal relationship. When one person takes long-term antibiotics, it does not mean that 10 people will die from C. diff. What I'm saying is that these problems share a universe. And if you want to understand why mainstream researchers are skeptical of chronic Lyme, this is the context you have to keep in mind. And to be clear, the fight has gotten personal. There are patients out there who are convinced they need long-term antibiotics. There's actually a class-action lawsuit by chronic Lyme patients being litigated right now in Texas, one that accuses a group of infectious disease experts of conspiring with insurance companies to deny long-term treatment. This is Mary Beth Pfeiffer, a journalist and author of Lyme, the first epidemic of climate change. Now, they they give just one example in the lawsuit of that actually happening, in which a uh, Lyme disease, uh, infectious disease physician, says he was paid $560 an hour to basically review claims, and in almost all cases, to deny them. That may sound nefarious, getting paid to review claims. But in itself, it's normal for insurance companies to pay experts to review hard-to-assess cases. So that's really not unusual. The contention here is that there is sort of this quid pro quo. Is this really about money? Is that what is driving this whole problem that we have? I can't say that. Of course, the doctors being sued would not say it was a quid pro quo. They're likely to talk about the issues in this episode, including this one, the overuse of antibiotics, which Mary thinks is a very thin argument. Lyme disease is the poster child 
for overuse of antibiotics, and it's based on very little evidence. From a numbers perspective, she's right. Colds, bronchitis, urinary tract infections, these are responsible for unneeded antibiotic use at orders of magnitude greater than Lyme disease. But from a symbolic point of view, long-term antibiotic therapy for chronic Lyme does present a particular problem. Because the treatments are being used despite minimal evidence of benefit, with no clear sense that the therapy will cure patients for lengths of time that are rare or unheard of in medicine. Is that an ethically defensible choice? I can't tell you that. And unfortunately, neither can the ethicists. Ethicists will not take away the burden of choosing from you. People often hope that, like, when when there's an ethicist talking, you know, when they ask me to give a talk, they think, ah, so I'm going to present some really um, morally sound solutions. And that's, you know, that's, that's, that is exactly what, what is not going to happen. So this is where we are. Patients and advocates fight for the right to treat with long-term antibiotics. The medical establishment fights to stop the trend from going too far. The answers aren't easy. But you do have to hope that everybody is asking the important questions. Because either way, the stakes are very, very high. Because we let people down in a very large way, you know. And we don't just let that patient down. You know, we let children down. We let, of of those patients, the spouses, their partners, their, you know, whoever it is that's important to those people we leave them, we, you know, we strand them. And then we wash our hands of it. You know, it's, they have to go on living with the condition that we've created, and we just move on to the next. On the next and final episode of this series, we return to the epidemiological triangle and a bold plan that hypothetically could wipe Lyme disease off the map. It's about a fundamental way to change living beings permanently. But is it too good to be true? There is no silver bullet. There's just no such thing. That's next time on Patient Zero. Patient Zero is produced and reported by me, Taylor Quimby. Projects like this one take time and resources. If you like what you hear, consider making a $20 donation at patientzeropodcast.org. Editing help for this episode came from Justine Paradise, Jimmy Gutierrez, and Annie Ropeek. Sam Evans-Brown is Patient Zero's senior producer. Erica Janik is executive producer. Fact-checking for this episode by Amy Tardiff. Graphics by Sarah Plord. Maureen McMurray is director of content. Special thanks to Carly Zimmerman. If you've got questions, concerns, or comments about Patient Zero, we want to hear from you. Email us at patientzero at nhpr.org. Patient Zero's theme was composed and performed by Ty Gibbons. Additional music from Poddington Bear, Blue Dot Sessions, Jason Moon, Taylor Quimby, and Disasterpiece. Credit music by Deerhoof. Patient Zero is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. (laughs) 